What if I told you that festivals, something that many of us love, are going to be back potentially in a way bigger way than they were before COVID-19? 2020 has been a whirlwind of a year. And as we head towards the end of 2020, towards the dawn of 2021, I think you're going to see some really interesting things that will blossom from this year. Of course, there's been a lot of tragedy, a lot of heartache. It's been a difficult time. But often what happens during those times is something else is created. Today on Dr. D's Social Network, I have with us Ed Vincent. And Ed is the founder and CEO of Festival Pass, a flat rate monthly subscription service that allows members unlimited access to festivals. How you view the festival experience might just be changing, and it might be for the better. Ed Vincent. We're here back in the network, this time with Ed Vincent. Ed, how's your day going today? So far, so good. I'm uh, down here in Austin, Texas, and it's sunny out, and uh, the weather's not bad. Awesome. I got several friends in Austin, and I've been there a few times. Really nice place. Yeah, yeah I'm a I'm new transplant. Just moved here a little over a month ago from New York City. Been in New York City for 23 years. Whoa, man. That must have been a little bit of a change, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a... Uh, a different atmosphere, but um, a good opportunity. That's awesome. Yeah, I hear a lot of people really love uh, Austin, and um, so I'd love to hear about your work with uh, Festival Pass and kind of your history, kind of leading up to that. So let's just start there. Yeah, sure, sure. So, um, so Festival Pass uh, in general is a it's a, the world's first um, subscription marketplace for live events, uh, and across its multiple genres. Uh, music and film, food and wine, tech and innovation, sports theater. Um, but just like you mentioned, there's context to to everything. Um, and I've been an entrepreneur for over over 20 years. Um, was a was a banker up until 1999. Uh, but then I left to start an e-commerce company, which I sold in 2001. And then through most of the 2000s, I had a uh, an experiential marketing agency, about 70 people. And uh, what we did is um, we, we would help integrate brands at a lot of large events. And in the process, we helped launch a number of uh, great film festivals, as well as owning one of our own down in the Dominican Republic. Um, but during that you know, almost decade of being in that business, uh, I grew to have a passion for live events and what it means to uh, have a moment in time and uh, have the community surrounding that event, whether it's a small you know, community um, food and wine in a local neighborhood or, you know, a big show at an amphitheater or, you know, a large multi-day festival. Uh, it's really a special moment in time. So, so as I kind of went through that process, um, I uh, eventually had a, a software as a service business uh, that I sold in 2014 and then uh, had a data consultancy for the last six years in the entertainment space. So learned a lot about 
what consumer data means um, with big clients like A&E Networks and AMC Networks. And during that time, I was uh, asked to come in as the interim chief data, data officer for a company called MoviePass, which many people may remember yes. uh, yeah. as jumping out and then uh, and fizzling out. <clears throat> but there's there's many reasons for for the reason that was successful and and you know some reasons why it didn't continue to succeed um but uh but fascinating time to to understand the the good and bad in that world but that all led up to me looking at a big marketplace like live events which is a 200 billion dollar industry pre-covid and we'll 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 be again uh once we come out of the other side of covid will be another 200 billion dollar industry um, but seeing a lot of reasons that a marketplace model under the way we are going at it with Festival Pass makes a lot of sense. So what is it about kind of the, I think for our listeners, you mentioned something about kind of the experience of being at a festival and that community and kind of, and really like kind of the DNA inside us related to these big experiences. What have you learned about that element of festivals or live music events that really draws people in? Yeah, it's just really about living in an experiential life. Um, you know, I think uh, there's been a big kind of recognized in the media concept that millennials tend to rather spend any discretionary dollars they have on experiences over over hard goods. Um, and I think that 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 spirit, even though sometimes they're bucketed in the ones doing it, uh, that spirit extends to everybody. So, um, you know, at all ages, whether, you, you know, you're in your teens and you want to hang out with friends at a, at a concert or an event, or, you know, either as you advance in life and want to have a nice glass of wine and some great food from great chefs in a community of hundreds of people or thousands of people, um, you really can't take away that human interaction. And I think that's a, you know, a lot of people are feeling that with the, the Zoom uh, fatigue going mm -hmm. on. Everybody just wants to get back together. So how has that manifested itself? I know you mentioned the Zoom fatigue, but what's kind of the state of the industry as of right now? And what's kind of the, or what are the pivot points or what do you see happening in the future with festivals? Sure, sure. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a broad kind of look, right? So obviously everybody is looking forward to uh, 2021 when we will have a credible vaccine that people are comfortable with mm -hmm. and that everybody will be back to kind of normalcy. Um, but obviously there's a period of time between then and now. Um, and it really depends on um, the part of the country that you're really in. Uh, talking about US, yeah. U.S. here, I'm already seeing a lot of live events come back across Europe and Australia and New Zealand. Um, but uh, here in the States, we're seeing, um, you know, a, a, there's a pivot to doing things in the short term that really continue to create engagement, like the drive-in concerts or drive-in movies. Mm -hmm. and I'm sure everybody's been talking about um, but also just the ability to just rethink uh, a lot of venues I know are beginning to reopen over the next month or so um, with new seating schemes. They're doing a lot in pods where you'll find uh, you can buy a pod of six tickets with your friends in one one little pod, mm. socially distanced from another pod. Um, so everybody's experimenting just because everybody really does want to get back to living life live and um you know, everybody's evolving through the process uh, of 
trying to be outdoors more, trying to create more pods. Uh, and I think that's what will sustain or at least slowly be the on-ramp back to normalcy. Do you see that once uh, there is a, you know, an accepted vaccine and let's say 2021, we're back to kind of a similar thing, will, will there be anything that will take away or that we've learned from this time that will apply to festivals or live events that may have not been done beforehand? Oh, absolutely. So, um, you know, first of all, the obvious is the um, receptiveness of some virtual experience uh, mm-hmm. will never replace live. Um, and a lot of companies pivoted to virtual concerts and shows and everything from virtual magic, magic shows to streamed Broadway shows. Um, and that's all great. But what what's, I think what's happened is the industry realized that there is some appetite for that. Um, so I do think on the other side of COVID is, um, is there will just be things that are complementary. There'll be more, even the smaller scale shows that are live will also have a streaming component to it to reach a broader audience. Things that back pre-COVID, people didn't put a lot of energy into, um, but now it just would become more acceptable to say, hey, there might be 10,000 or 50,000 people at a, a live event. Uh, we're going to stream that and we're going to reach an audience of others, but it won't replace the live event. It'll just extend it. So that that's one. Yeah. and I, Yeah. No, go ahead. I, I, I want to interrupt. I was going to say, wouldn't there be more revenue possibilities potentially if you're putting it out there to even a large? So let's say you get 50,000 people at an event and then you're also you know, asking people to pay to stream it as well. It could be even a bigger industry than it was before so, because of the confidence in doing that. Absolutely. Yeah, I highly agree. And, and kind of what I was saying is that sometimes when uh, in any industry, the adoption uh, of things moving to the other side go quicker when certain events make it happen, meaning that there was always this move to complementary streaming for live events. But unless you're one of the big, the big huge companies that uh, at the time could put on the production value to stream something at scale, um, you know, it just wasn't worth the time, effort, and money to do so. But now, because of COVID, there's dozens, if not hundreds, of companies that have come into the marketplace to assist streaming at low-cost ways. So now you are able to, to do exactly what you mentioned. So you could be a, a local festival that might have 10,000 people or 5,000 people, and you can still cost-effectively reach that audience. That's amazing. I mean, there's lots of great small venue or small event uh, artists and things that are going, they're just like, man, you go into a small town and you see somebody amazing, you're like, where has this person been? And they have the ability to actually see that group or those people or these events virtually, I think, could be a really um, interesting possibility as we head towards those things. Yes, I, I absolutely agree. And, you know, one, one of the things streaming hasn't been applied to very often in the past, which will very much be part of it coming out of this, is there's a, there's a group of independent venues. Um, there's an association called NEVA, the National Independent Venue Association, which is really a collection of 3,000 or so music venues throughout the country. And uh, just this past weekend, they did a fundraiser called Save Our Stages virtually that was broadcast and live streamed on YouTube. Uh, and they had you know 30 or 40 amazing artists from the Foo Fighters to Miley Cyrus to Lumineers all on small stages throughout the country being streamed, packaged into one overall production. Uh, mm. So when you see things like that, you realize that 
yes, these small venues can begin to have a streaming component to them. So the revenue stream isn't only ticket sales, food and drink. It's also some some form of virtual content distribution. Wow. It's weird how like things that are very tragic or can be very difficult in life often spur innovation on the other side of it. And it feels like this is an area that we may be seeing an explosion after this of even more technology and more innovation and more opportunity for artists and people planning events. Absolutely. And uh, there's, there's even, you know, something that you talk about, which allows certain technologies to come back and that were maybe not ready originally. Um, you know, 10 years ago, vir- virtual reality was, was like the hottest thing, right? It was, what's, yeah. what is it going to be? Where's it coming? But how many people do you know that sit at home with a headset watching virtual reality? Probably not many. <laughs> no. However, however, I believe uh, something like COVID kind of brought it a little more to the top of mind of a lot of uh, producers and technologists and even consumers. So um, I do think in the next two to three years, there'll be a resurgence of virtual reality. And, you know, like you mentioned, the concept of seeing a show, there are technologies where you can take, you know, filming of a large scale concert. And, you know, instead of just seeing it on your laptop or on your TV, you can actually be there by wearing the virtual reality um, headset. That's mind-blowing. I, I believe it. I believe it's definitely going to happen for that. Tell me a little bit about the subscription model that you guys have and what maybe the relevancy of, or the increasing relevancy of subscription-based models and like our streaming and different aspects of that. Sure, sure. So there's there's a, a bunch of different pieces. There's one, um, you know, over the last, call it three to five years, subscription models have become something positive for both the consumer and the business, right? So this is more of a, a, a high-level um, comment, and then I can get into more of the granular details. But okay. uh, on a high level, consumers tend to appreciate subscription models because it allows them to budget for certain things. It allows them to generally have things um, acquired at a lower cost, um, and it enables them to um, kind of commit to uh, certain things that they enjoy uh, in a way that, um, you know, again, keeps it, keeps it within budget, but at the same time, um, you know, allows them to understand what their costs are going to be. Uh, for the business, it's great because it enables the business to predict revenue streams. Um, so any kind of ad spending that goes against acquiring a customer, you have a better prediction on what the regularity of those income streams are on a month-to-month basis. Um, super helpful just from the pure management of business uh, as well as marketing spend. So, so those two things, it really uh, creates a complementary uh, concept for both the consumer and the business, which I think has been great for everybody. The difference is there's a lot of models out there on how to execute subscription. And there's been a lot of attempts to play with different models uh, some through which work and some that don't. Uh, so I think that's right. in the evolution. Uh, and we, we did reference MoviePass before, which was a great consumer play, being able to go to unlimited movies for a very low cost. Um, but there really wasn't a core underlying business model to what was being offered, mm. which is non-sustainable going forward. 
Right. And so this subscription model, so what you guys have it, it just you you buy the subscription and you're able to attend unlimited amount of festivals or within the um, atmosphere of of this platform that you have, I would love like maybe a little deeper explanation on that. Yeah, sure, no. So that that kind of goes to um, what we've created is a sustainable gross margin positive model outside of mm. the other attempts to do so were. Um, so ours is a credit based currency model. So what happens is you you sign up on a monthly basis and pay anywhere from nine dollars a month to ninety nine dollars a month, and for whatever tier you sign up for, you get a certain amount of credits. Um, you think of the old days when you'd go to an arcade and you put $10 in the machine and you get yeah. tokens. It was up to you to decide, do you spend those tokens on you know one token for a pinball machine or four for a, a driving game? So what it allows our users and consumers to do is commit to you know a monthly budget of you know becoming a live event consumer. And because they're committing to that, they get a certain amount of credits and they can use those credits at thousands of different events. Um, and there's a lot of benefits to doing so to be a member of festival pass. The first simple one is you don't never pay a ticketing fee. I don't know uh, how many mm. times people went and bought a ticket to, yes. and then they got a little frustrated on the way out when they got charged an extra 20% in ticketing fee. Um, yeah. So that's one big benefit of, of, being part of the subscription model. Uh, the others are uh, you'll never pay more for a ticket uh, through the credit system than you would if you went direct. Uh, and then we also are adding in a bunch of unique benefits depending upon our partners in the tier. Um, could be getting access to shows before they're available elsewhere. Could be VIP access to certain things. Um, so it's a collection of benefits for being a member of Festival Pass. Um, but some of the easy ones to understand are never pay a ticketing fee and never pay more than it's sold direct. Gotcha. Well, it's interesting. How do you see this subscription model moving forward into the future? Like you want to kind of stay this or you're always tinkering with how does this, how does this continue to evolve over time? Yeah. So for us, I mean, right now, um, our core redemption of credits is all about, um, you know, the access to the show itself, as well as what we talked about earlier is we eventually will have virtual streams on the platform. And, um, you know, it might cost you, you know, to your, to your point earlier, it might cost you 30 credits to attend the live show itself. But for five credits, you might be able to uh, live stream it from home. So the idea is you just have this currency that can be applied in different places. Um, we would love to, and we will be evolving that currency to more of the kind of larger ecosystem. So the ability to commit to uh, a subscription itself, but also be able to redeem those credits for the show ticket itself. Potentially, you know, the app will have a QR code that when you actually walk into the venue, you can get, you know, specials at the venue, two for one drinks, maybe discounted uh, mm -hmm. sessions, the ability to use your credits to buy merch and have it automatically sent home to your house. Um, it can go on and on. The ability to use it for a discounted ride on Lyft or Uber. Uh, but, the, but the idea being it's this credit-based currency within the ecosystem of live events that enable you to, to feel like you're a special member um, you know, aligned with all the other people that love going to live events. Awesome. It sounds, I mean, it sounds very robust. I mean, it sounds really cool. Um, what is the, 
Is there an uh, like an AI component? I know it's a large term, but like, is there any way that kind of like specializes that, hey, I like the Rolling Stones or something, and it tries to push me Rolling Stones-based concerts or whoever, that it really caters to the individual buyer and says, you like these concerts, so we're going to try to push these towards you. Is that an element of it? Absolutely. So, so I shared with you uh, my six years deep uh, expertise in consumer uh, data, mm-hmm. um, and that is what I spent a lot of time working on at all those big, large entertainment companies. Uh, so, absolutely. I mean, we we already have an integrated data graph of 250 million U.S. consumers on the back end of our infrastructure to be able to enable us to understand the different segments of people that come in. Um, so, as people are joining. Um, there's multiple ways that we create that recommendation engine. The obvious is um, they, they self-report their interests, right? So upon signing up, you know, you'll tell me, are you a music fan, a film fan, a food and wine fan? What do you like? And of course, we're, we're keeping all that data. Uh, then there's also the behavioral aspect. You know, what, what events have you looked at on our platform? Uh, which ones have you clicked the like button on? Uh, which ones have you actually gone to? Um, so those are all the data elements we're collecting along the way, um, for your personalized account. Uh, and then when you actually come to the events page on our site, it's, it it is personalized for you. Um, it tells you, you know, what's near you, what are recommended events because of your, because of things you went to in the past. So think of it like into the way Netflix works. So if you, you log into Netflix and it knows what you watched and it recommends what you should watch. Um, so we're doing that for live events because just like anywhere is with thousands upon thousands of events, it's almost impossible to weed through them all. What we're doing is we're surfacing the ones that are right for you at the right time at the right place. And of course you can always search all of them whenever you wanted to, just like Netflix. So I'm being in, in, in data and then obviously you have a very good understanding of it. What are the what are the concerns that people may have about that? The positives and maybe negatives or just concerns? Because I'm sure people listen to this and they become more aware of like data breaches and and in that whole sense of like, hey, you're looking at something and then it shows you, hey, I was thinking about this trip and then it shows me about this trip. Are there any concerns in your mind about that? And if there are, what's being done to help alleviate those? Sure. So, so it all depends on the aspect that you're talking about, right? So I think your reference before is simply what retargeting is in the world of advertising. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're, if you're on a travel site looking at a trip to Greece, um, it, it, it's capturing the cookie on your browser and it then is able to utilize that to retarget and add to you when you go elsewhere. Um, that, that's a little different than what we're talking about. Not to say that that isn't just a prevalent thing yeah. within the internet. It just is. I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody's Anybody that chooses to block their cookies uh, on their browser um, won't receive any of that personalization, and they'll also be preventing right. people from using it. So I think consumers these days have, um, you know, either chosen to accept it or chosen to remove themselves from the equation. Uh, on, on our side, um, what we're talking about more is as you're engaging in the platform itself, um, you're self-reporting and you're choosing to do things that will help us help you, right? So it's really a symbiotic relationship. We're not, we're not taking your data and selling it to the highest bidder. We're, we're actually using it just to build a better experience for you within our environment. Yeah, that's int- I think it's a good distinction between that because sometimes I think it can be all thrown together. 
and that information. This is probably more high level. I, maybe it doesn't concern Festival Pass. I mean, it does, but where do you see this like self-reporting measures, uh, understanding what humans want more? How can that be applied to other areas? Do Have you thought about this, especially being an entrepreneur? Like, how can this move into other areas of life that maybe we're not doing this? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Are, are you saying um, there's really two elements to that? It's the giving permission for people to, you know, track some of your habits in order to provide better experience. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think I think that that is used often in a lot of um, you know web-based or app-based environments already today. Um, you know, I think the question is is where can that be applied elsewhere, uh, even in the offline environment? Um, yeah, and it's really it, it, the silly part about it in the big picture. It's really just automation of things that have been going on for a hundred years. Like how, how many times in the old days? where you'd walk into a restaurant and the, the maitre d' knows your favorite table and they know, oh, that you, ah. you love the chicken appetite tend to like red, red uh, Cabernet wine from California. It's, it's really the same thing. And just in the old days, the, the maitre d' or the waiter had to remember that. Uh, now computers just do it for you. That's a good point. I, I think sometimes we don't make those associations about that, that when a, let's say, um, you know, a waiter, a waitress, you know, you go in there regularly and they go, I want the regular, or they know, Hey, you want this tonight? And you're like, yeah, because people are like, you know, there's a sense of comfort when let's say you go to a place and people already know what you want, Correct. which tends to go towards what people are very creatures of comfort base. And so it feels like we don't make those connect, like how you explain that. I don't hear that among people. Well, we're going to, we're going to have to amplify that message. and. Uh... <laughs> that people realize that it's not as creepy as they think. At the end of the day, it's just computers helping, uh, you know, you have that better experience. Yeah, because like, that's the first time I've heard that association, but it makes, makes perfect sense. And I think it sometimes goes to what is being projected to us as a society or what are our, or what are, what, what silo are we in? You know, if you're not looking for this, maybe you're not getting it. <laughs> you know, we, and that's one of my big things with podcasts, just learning from other people in areas I know nothing about. Like I like festivals, but understanding like the back end of it and understanding where we're going with that, I think is a really interesting conversation for that because it is a lot like that. It's like just knowing your preferences, it seems like, you know? Yeah. And I think just like any anything in life, right? There's a, you go back to the old days of the superheroes, there's the hall of doom and the hall of justice. Like, uh, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it depends how you use your superpower. And, uh, and you know, when you use it for the good of creating a better user experience and having a better customer product that builds your business and makes your business more profitable, everybody wins. But when people use data to, you know, either falsely manipulate or try to, yeah you know, choose to do negative things, that's what we hear more about. And that's why sometimes people are afraid of data getting into the wrong hands, simply because of the fact that there's a fear that somebody might use it for a, a, a bad reason. Right. Most definitely. Now, talk to me a little bit about entrepreneurship. I mean, since like you've been a serial entrepreneur and it's a, it's a hot topic for a lot of people wanting to get in their own business and startups, what have been what is some advice that you would provide for people about the kind of the, the highs and lows of it, the reality of it? Yeah. Sure. So, um, 
you know, I would share it's something that, uh, it, you have to take the highs and lows with it. Right. So, uh, it's, everybody thinks they're going to go be an entrepreneur and run a business and they're going to mm-hmm. raise the dollars and it's going to be easy. It's never easy. So I've, I've never met an entrepreneur and I, I, I'm part of a group called EO, which is the entrepreneurs organization been for 13 years that a, a collection of 14,000 entrepreneurs globally, but, uh, never once did I hear from a single one of them that, you know, it's an easy road. However, it's a very fulfilling road because there's nothing more exciting than to create something that didn't exist before uh, and see it come to fruition. Yeah, most definitely. Is is that a vibe you're sensing in Austin? I know we had talked to you in Austin. What's what's the pull for being down there? For I noticed a lot of people are heading there. Is there a mindset there that a lot of people are attracted to, or what's your sense of it where you're at? Yeah, I think I think what it is, and the reason I was attracted is, um, you know, being in New York for over two decades and being in the technology space and the entrepreneurial space. Um, you know, there there are a lot of elements that Austin provides that uh, meet some of the needs of being in New York or San Francisco or LA or pick pick any market, <clears throat> but also provides um, other uh, living standard things that are nice. Right, it's a heck of a much it's a lot cheaper to live in Austin than it is in New York or San Francisco. Um, the, the open outdoor space here is just tremendous. Um, you know, there's within five or 10 minutes, you can be on the water on a lake, on a paddleboard, uh, canoeing down the river, you know, a short drive to a boat, um, you know, a lot of trails to go running. Just a lot of things that, um, you know, if you're in New York or San Francisco and you want to do something, it's like a couple hour ordeal to get to it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think that's, it's that lifestyle thing, but then they also have here a lot of the same, uh, pulls, like a lot of great entrepreneurs, uh, a, a great infrastructure that allows peer support. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, capital and venture capital down here. Um, and then just the, to your point, the, the attitude that everybody here is really, you know, not everybody, but most people are, really just trying to support each other to succeed. And, uh, you know, and Texas does have no state tax <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that doesn't hurt right? a few other, uh, elements that, that make it attractive. Yeah. I've noticed that I, I have a buddy that runs a news organization in Austin and he just loves it there. And I think for many of the same things you just mentioned, uh, for that, it feels also feels like more people are wanting to be outside and be closer to nature. Um, and city, have you noticed that with basically like, not that city living is going to dry up. I mean, people, I think will still enjoy them at some, you know, as we go down the line, but have you seen kind of that migration of people from cities like New York city to other places that are more wide open? I, I do. And, and I also think, uh, obviously with the pandemic, it's, it's uh, like me, it was like the kind of the, the conduit to say, Hey, if, if, if there's ever a time to do it, instead of working from home in a small apartment in New York, you might as well do it in a place where you can go outside and go for a walk in nature, kind of what you were saying earlier. Um, might as well have that right at your doorstep. Um, but I think, uh, you know, the, the general, um, concept of cities, smaller cities, not the, you know, the major metropolises, uh, in my opinion, over the last 10 years have gotten a lot more attractive. So, yeah, I remember 15 years ago when I considered moving out of New York, it was really hard for me to find a place that had culture, had tech, had entrepreneurship. It really at the time was either San Francisco or 
maybe and Austin was beginning to be a little bit of that back then. Um, but now there's so many, there's 20 or 30 or 40, you know, smaller cities that have a great restaurant scene, have a great downtown area, have a great, you know, tech entrepreneur scene. You know, I'm talking, you know, everything from the bigger ones like Denver and Raleigh, North Carolina and Pittsburgh and all these great cities that you can just have a, a great lifestyle that 20 years ago, they didn't have that. So true. Actually, I've, I've been to all those places, Raleigh, especially. I used to go there all the time when I was in college. I was a collegiate athlete. And so we would always have meets there. And I was thinking, this is an amazing place. And I haven't been there in a while, but apparently it's gotten even awesome, more awesome. So <laughs> that's a good thing, I think. What's the, this is a very large question, I understand, but what's the future of technology in your mind and how it meets human needs? Well, sure. I mean, I, th I think you've probably, like all of us, have seen um, the application of technology to industries that um, that is markedly changing what it is, right? So if you're talking about healthcare or research, um, you know, even cancer in itself, just to, to give that analogy is in the last five or 10 years, you've seen all the movement towards immunotherapy. That that was impossible without, without um, big technology. Um, the ability to actually, you know, provide drug treatments specifically for the single human rather than, you know, the uh, blanket approach that was used in the past with things like chemo and, and other, you know, other treatments, whereas now you can actually treat cancer with your own body's, um, you know, your own body's uh, elements specifically made for you. So that's one example. And you can go on and on with um, the application of it to transportation, um, you know, the ability to change, you know, everything from a, a gas gas cars to electric, from the efficiency of airplanes, the ability to have small mobility travel. So you can just go on and on. Uh, the technology continues to impact big industries more and more. And, you know, life, life events like the COVID pandemic um, really just push things along. It gives, it gives people a reason to say, you know what, I think it's time to accelerate towards, towards the other side of a, a movement within an industry. That's fantastic. I think so too. I think sometimes we're told about technology in this dark dystopic future, which we see in movies all the time for some reason. Maybe it's just a better movie that way. I don't know. But it seems like there's a lot of really bright outcomes and Festival Pass seems to also be a part of that. So I'd love if you can just share with everyone um, information, where to find Festival Pass, anything you'd love to talk about, about, about it just so people can find it and, and take advantage of it. Sure. So the, the simple part is just go to festivalpass.com. That's the easiest place to sign up. You can sign up for a free account today. And then when you're ready to attend some events, you can upgrade that account to one of the paid um, subscription accounts. Um, you know, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, uh, you can find myself on LinkedIn, um, under my name, Ed Vincent. Um, but overall, uh, you know, what we're really trying to accomplish is to, to really build a big ecosystem of membership to, to empower people to have a, a frictionless, social, uh, easy way to attend live events and discover things that they never even knew existed before. It's another big piece of what we're trying to do in that, in that AI recommendation concept is to discover things that you might not have known existed, um, the way people can discover new shows on Netflix or new movies. Um, so that's exciting for us. They're, like 
when when the world of how do I find out what's going on in my local town um, kind of went away with uh, a lot of small media publications. Um, yeah. You know, people used to go to their newspaper to find out what's going on for the weekend or, you know, the radio station would be saying the big events that are going on. There's really, there's really no place right now with a fully aggregated, searchable context outside of knowing what you want and going to Google and searching for it. So, oh, I mean, it sounds very powerful, like a very powerful platform for that. And uh, sounds simple. You know, making things simple to sign up is really important. Yeah. Yep. No, absolutely. So, yeah, we're excited. We're, uh, you know, we continue as we go forth to uh, build partnerships with you know, I love supporting independent music. Um, you know, we're excited to try and help all the live independent venues get to the other side of COVID so they can thrive, survive, then thrive, uh, and then really just get everybody back to enjoying life. That's incredible. Uh, one last quick question. Do you work with like independent artists as well, or is it just venues? Um, it's a, uh, I would say it's partners across the board. Uh, mostly it's, it's mm. either venue owners or rights holders uh, that are organizing shows or events um uh over time i think we'll we'll get more into providing opportunities for artists um you know just like everything you can't boil the ocean so you can't do too many things at one time um but uh you know the first step is being a great b2b um partner and conduit for um you know a lot of the just the owners and organizers of events uh which includes venues which includes producers which includes uh you know, anybody that has the right to sell a ticket to an event. Um, but as we evolve, we'll, we will provide more and more opportunity for all the constituents in the community to participate. Fantastic. Well, Ed, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I really appreciate you sharing this information and just another entry into what's happening and what's new and what's part of the future of our society. So thank you. I appreciate it, Darren. Thanks so much. All right. Have a good one, man. I'll be in touch. Sounds great. I appreciate it. Thank you. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching. And finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut or The Dose of News Useful Today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine, and when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences, and it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about. And it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else. It's your daily reminder that there is good in the world, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. So, get the donut. Stay informed. It's 100% free. You can unsubscribe anytime. Visit thedonut.co or text DONUT to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.